the glory of your Son, who is greater than angels, who is far above all rule and authority and power, and every name that is named, this age and also of the age to come. So in that, Lord, we rejoice. I pray you'd empower me. Come with your Spirit. Speak to us. Penetrate our hearts and cause us to rejoice in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. You've been seated for a while. I'm going to invite the children to come and get their notes. The uh, children want to go to Children's Church Can. In fact, why don't all of you just stand up, take a brief break, maybe greet one another for a time of uh, quick fellowship here, and then we'll open the Word. Maybe meet someone who you don't know. We'll gather together a little bit. We have no Children's Church today, so all the kids are here. I'm sorry. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. Okay, we don't have any children's church today. I know that uh, we've um, figured that out by now. Um, But it's good. So the kids will be with us today, which is good for them, actually, um, to help them to see uh, what's going on. And never underestimate what children learn through the Word. I've just been astonished and always encouraged uh, over the years of what the children learn uh, at Rock Valley Bible Church. I would consider and encourage you that um, the perspective of someone I remember who came into church who was initially uh, a little bit um, distracted by some of the noise the children make. Uh, clipboards drop, a little squeaking, a little squirming, and, uh, and then this woman told me, she said, but then I reflected and I said that, that they're in here with us, learning God's Word, attentive and being a joy. And so it kind of changed her perspective. So when the clipboard dropped, she was happy. Uh, just because, you know what, the children are here with us and that's a, that's a good thing. Before I begin, I do want to highlight two things for you. Um, first of all is the marriage conference, Norm Wakefield's in the back of, of our bulletins here. Um, you know, I've had several of you tell me audibly, oh, we're planning to go. Uh, I would encourage, I would love to see everybody here uh, go to that. Uh, not that our marriages are all in shambles and we need help, but because our marriages are strong and we need to make them stronger. Uh, but if, boy, if you could write a check to Rock Valley Bible Church and get that to me soon. I, I saw Frank Yonke yesterday and he put his arm around me and reminded me, okay, the marriage conference, Norm Wakefield, we want to get a count. I said, I think we're going to have about 15 or 20 families there from Rock Valley Bible Church. Um, it's kind of my guess. It's my, my sense. I know some of you are busy that day, but if at all possible, boy, arrange babysitting for the kids. If you need some child care, there's some child care help there. But if you can get a check 
To me, that'd be great. Uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, $35 is cheap. Norm Wakefield's got some great messages. Um, I'll probably remind you, if you don't sign up, I, I might even call you this week just encouraging you. So if you get a call from me, it's not because I think your marriage is crumbling. Okay, it's because I think that it would be good for us as a family. It would be like family night. Family night has borne great fruit in the lives of the families even so far as we've just watched some parenting videos, not because we're terrible parents, but we need to be better. Just the gospel would in, impact our lives. Also, we have um, a ladies' Bible study this week uh, at our house at uh, 7 o'clock. I would encourage you ladies to come. 7 o'clock or 6.30? I don't even know. What time is it? 6.30 at, at our place. So come to that. I know that many women have been impacted by the videos of Elise Fitzpatrick. And she's just reminding the ladies again of the gospel of Christ. That in Jesus, our sins are wiped away. So let's live. Let's live in accordance with that. Well, with that as a quasi-introduction, let's, let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We are continuing our exposition of this book. Last week we finished at verse 3. Kind of finished right in the middle of a sentence. Um, so it's, it's appropriate if we set up verse 4 by reading the sentence or two where we'll pick up this morning verse, verse 4. The writer begins this, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, that is our days today, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And here begins our text. Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. We saw last week of the better revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation was compared to this revelation of old, which came long ago to the fathers and the prophets. Lots of different ways, lots of different manners, lots of different books, lots of different people. Old, the prophets. But, in these last days, the revelation is better because it's come to us. And it's come to us, not in people, not in books, but it's come to us in a Son. It's come to us in Jesus Christ. Last week we also looked and we said that Jesus is a better person, that He has has a better position, He has a better status role in heaven, that He is the heir of all things, that is, He possesses all things, that He is the Creator of the world. Not one thing that was made was not made through Jesus Christ. He is the glory of God, the radiance of His glory. How God radiates, so it is that Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is the nature of God. He sustains the world, upholding all things by the word of His power. And the good news to us in the Gospel of Christ is that He is the purifier of sins. He made purification, past tense, of sins by His work upon the cross. And He is also the ruler of the world who sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high. We have every reason to pay attention to Jesus Christ. That's where chapter 1 is going to finish. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, you say, what reason? Well, everything here in chapter 1, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. I just encourage you all, church family, pay attention to these things. 
Pay attention to our greater revelation as His Son. Pay attention to our greater person, Jesus Christ. And don't drift. Don't drift from these things. Well, today, we come to another reason why Jesus is better. It's not just to have a better revelation. It's not just a better person. But here it is in verse 4. He is better than angels. Look what it says there. Having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. This verse right here sets up the entire rest of chapter 1. You might say this is the theme statement of chapter 1, that Jesus has become much better than the angels. And the writer from verses 5-14 through 14 quotes seven different passages of Scripture to show how Jesus is indeed better than the angels. In fact, if you look in your Bibles, a lot of your Bibles have indentations or they're in different styles of print or in all caps designating that these are Old Testament quotations. Five of them are from the Psalms. One is from Deuteronomy. One is from 2 Samuel. But all of them show and drive home the point that Jesus Christ is indeed better than the angels. If you accept the Old Testament as true revelation, then you'll see that Jesus is better than any of the angels. And He's going to spend all of chapter 1 on the angels. In fact, He's going to spend much of chapter 2 as well talking about Jesus and the relationship to angels and showing that Jesus is better than the angels. And, and, and so I ask you, is Jesus better than the angels? Okay, is Jesus better than the angels? Yes, okay. Now, I also ask you, before you came in here today, were you convinced that Jesus was better than the angels? Probably. Uh, I mean, think about uh, Some of this has to do with how we view angels. I mean, I mean, this might seem like a strange argument to you, that he spends two chapters describing, explaining how Jesus is better than the angels. I mean, to us, it's like a no-brainer. I mean, of course he's better than angels. And a lot of it has to do with our view of angels. To us, angels have become precious moments, figurines. Right? They have become tame little women, gentle women with wings that you sit on top of your Christmas tree, flying with harps around. Angels have become sentimental objects representing the power of positive thinking. Just think of the angels. Oh, it gives you warm fuzzies just even thinking about angels. In fact, I remember when I was in the computer world, I worked for a, a hospital and uh, one of my responsibilities was to go out and help people with their computers whenever they had a problem. And uh, I remember one time going to the desk of this woman who worked for us. And, and I went to this desk many times, so it's not just once I went. But she was like a, an angel fanatic, if you will. She just collected every kind of trinket and every kind of little thing about angels that she could. She, she had angel figurines all around her desk. In every kind of nook and cranny, she had shells. Or in front of her binder, she had all these little porcelain figures. She had angels made of fabric. She had angels made of plastic. She had pictures of angels. Some were like more realistic. Some were cartoonish. She had little plaques, inspirational plaques, saying things like this, angels believe in you, or angels at work, or protected by angels, or you know things, things like this. And basically this woman was a collector of angelic memorabilia, is what it was. And too often, that's the way we can think of angels as gentle women flying around, coming and nurturing us for our every need. And if that's our view of angel, of course Jesus is better than the angels. 
But to the Jews, things were different. When they thought of angels, their view of angels was shaped by Scriptures. They, they saw the angels as magnificent creatures of purity, flying around the throne of God with their, their, their wings covering their eyes and covering their feet and flapping around like Isaiah chapter 6 speaks about, the seraphim, the pure ones. And day and night they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and was and is to come. The whole earth is full of His glory. So they saw these angels. They, they thought of angels. They saw angelic beings around the throne beholding God all the time. When the Jews thought of angels, they thought of warriors. They thought of warriors who surrounded the mountainsides, though yet invisible, yet mighty in power, able to overwhelm puny human armies with their numbers and might. When they thought of angels, they thought of power. In speaking with an angel, Manoah and his wife thought that they would die having spoken with an angel. The angel... An angel one time stopped an entire army of Pharaoh. The entire Egyptian army pursuing it, and an angel said, stop right there, formed a cloud, and the entire army was stopped from going forward. In 2 Kings 19, we read how the angel of the Lord destroyed 185 Assyrians in one night, wiping them out. They're pretty mighty creatures. And indeed, I believe the Jews had a far more accurate of angels than we have today with our precious moments, angels. Because that's a view of angels. And so when the Jews thought about comparing Jesus to angels, there was a battle here. Well, who's better than an angel that can slay 185,000 people, Assyrian warriors, in a night? Or is Jesus this humble and meek man who walked on the earth and died passively upon the cross? Who's... Are you, serious? Are you really telling me that Jesus is better than the angels? Yes, He's better than the angels. And they needed convincing. And I think if we had a proper view of, of angels, perhaps we would need convincing as well. Because they are strong and mighty and powerful. One angel is far more powerful than all of us in this room put together. The myriads of angels will far overwhelm and overpower any military might. I don't care how strong the United States is. is no match for angels. So the writer of the Hebrews sets out to convince them that Jesus Christ is better than angels. And I want to just read the argument in full. There's, there's no way we're going to get through all of it today. In fact, I thought about different approaches to what we, what we might do today. I thought about because it's one thought, verses 4 through 14, I thought about just flying through these verses. And then upon second thought, I said, no, let's, let's just go slow down. Let's dig into each of these verses because some of these are, are very good and important for us to know. Here he says, verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, and let all the angels of God worship Him. And of the angels, He says, who makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. 
And you, Lord, Jesus, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? At this point, I want to point out to you that to the original hearers, the original readers of this letter, um, these quotes just came. And uh, there were no cross-references in the Scriptures they had. At no point did the author identify where these passages came from. The assumption is that listeners or readers would be familiar with these words. They came from the Old Testament. They would know when He said, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. They would know where that Scripture was. And when they said, I will be a father to Him and He should be a son to Me, they say, Oh, I know where that Scripture passage is. And when He said, And let all the angels of God worship Him, they say, I know where that passage is. So I ask you, do you know where these passages are? Do you know where any of these passages are? Maybe you have some. Maybe you know a lot. You know, so I looked at these. You know, I knew about where half of them were. I was convicted. I need to know the Bible's better. You know the Bible better. You need to know the Scriptures better. You need to know the Old Testament better. So when I see some of these, I just say, ooh, that's where it came from. I'm learning. And I trust you will too. It's a call for us to know the Scriptures. Now, fortunately for us, we have Bibles, we have footnotes in our Bibles to help us out. But it wasn't available for those in the first century. But all these Scripture portions of the Old Testament show that Jesus Christ is better than angels. Better than angels is my point this morning. It's my title of my message this morning. Because everything derives it from that point. In fact, if you look here in verse 4, having become, here it is, as much better than the angels. Everything's going to talk about that. Proving that from the Old Testament. Now, here at this point, though, I want to, want to pause here in this word better. I put up here this uh, logo for the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better, so press on. This is the first time we encounter this word better, but it's going to occur 12 more times in the book of Hebrews. This word better, it only occurs like 18 times in the whole New Testament, but 12 of them, 13 of them, are in the book of Hebrews. just want to give you an insight into what kind of things are better. In chapter 7, verse 19, we're going to read of a better hope that we have in Jesus. In chapter 7, verse 22, we're going to read of the better covenant that Jesus has provided. In chapter 8, verse 6, we're going to read of the, the better covenant that Jesus has given us, which has been enacted on better promises. In chapter 9, verse 23, we see Jesus has offered better sacrifices in the Old Testament. We see in chapter 10, verse 34, that we have a better possession awaiting us in heaven as compared to the possessions we have here on earth. In chapter 11, verse 16, we'll see how the the saints of old were desiring a better country, which we are desiring as well. In chapter 11, verse 35, the writer speaks of how through suffering and tribulation and torture, we will receive a better resurrection. Chapter 11, verse 40, we have the assurance that God has provided something better for us who believe than the Old Testament saints had who gained approval through their faith. In chapter 12, verse 24, 
we read of how the blood of Jesus is better than the blood of Abel. Of course it's better. It is better. But here in our text this morning, of all the things that are better, Jesus is better than the angels. And the reason why comes right here in verse 4. He's inherited a more excellent name than they. He has been given a more excellent name than they. He is, is inherited. Now, oftentimes we can take this human word and, and we inherit things when our parents die. You, you can't take this word that far when dealing with Jesus. But there is something that when, when parents die, they pass their inheritance on to children. And there is something that Father has given Jesus to possess. He has inherited, it says here, a more excellent name. We see in chapter 1, verse 2, that He was the heir of all things. So, chapter 1, verse 2, thinks even of, of physical possessions, spiritual people, the heir of all things. And in verse 4, it's a name that Jesus has inherited, that He has received this name. Now, when we say the name that He's inherited, as it says here in verse 4, it's not that the syllable Jesus are better than Michael or Gabriel or Paul or Tim or Betsy or Billy Bob. It's not that Jesus is better than those names. Rather, this phrase, the name of Jesus, refers to His character, refers to His being. It refers to the totality of who Jesus is. When the Scripture uses someone's name, it it speaks about far more than just the mere words that identify somebody. Names have deep meaning. And someone's name is really a reputation they are. In fact, Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver or gold. In other words, it's far better to have a good reputation among people than it is to have a big house and lots of cars and means by which you can take every exotic vacation you want to take. A name, a reputation is far better. Better to die a good, righteous man than to die a wealthy man who had no regard for Christ. In fact, that's what Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, a good name is better than good ointment. It's better to have a good reputation than to enjoy some of the fineries, the nice perfumes of life. And the reason is because someone's name is their reputation. It's good to have a good name. Furthermore, a name in the Bible can even resent one's authority. When David fought Goliath, he fought under authority. He said to the giant, You come with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. I am coming by the authority that God has granted me. The power there. Jesus told us to pray in His name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Why? Because it's His authority. We do so to invoke His authority upon our prayers. But name even goes further than that. Name represents a being. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. We are called to bless the name of God. Yahweh. But it's not just the the words or the text on the paper that we are to bless. We are to bless His name because His name represents His very being. Or Psalm 113, Praise the Lord. Praise those servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because the, the name of the Lord is the Lord. Those things are equivalent. So His name even represents His being. That's why we pray, Hallowed, O Lord, be Your name. May Your name, may Your being, may Your reputation, may Your authority be hallowed and sanctified 
May all fear you upon the earth. And that's what the writer's getting at here in verse 4. He has a name. He has a being. Jesus, in and of Himself, is far better than the angels. Greater reputation, greater authority, greater power, greater being. In verse 5, we see His first argument of why Jesus is better than the angels. First of all, Jesus is the Son. You know, and before I read verse 5, I just want to say, the aim of my message this morning is this. It's, it, in this whole passage, we don't have any exhortation, we don't have any commands to obey. What we do have is things to believe. And my aim this morning is, is I want you to see, I want to show you how great Jesus is. I want you to see how great Jesus is. That then you might be convinced of that and be drawn to worship Him. And be convinced that He is the highest name in heaven and on earth. So I'm just, this morning, I'm just going to lift up Jesus. How good is it for us to church just to lift high Jesus, right? First of all, we see that Jesus is a Son. Verse 5 the rhetorical question is asked, For to which of the angels did He, that is God the Father, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. What's the answer to the question? To which of the angels have He ever said this? The answer is, Nobody. None. There's only one being in the universe to which Jesus has ever, which God the Father has ever said, You are my son. None of the angels ever received the title of my son. No angel can claim this father-son relationship. Oh, angels are called sons of God, the book of Job, several times. But nowhere is any one of them, any one of them ever singled out to be called my son. As if the one and only, the begotten Son of God. There's none. So it makes Jesus unique. It makes Him greater than the angels. He's received the name Son. None of the angels have. And to prove this, the writer then digs into the first of the Psalms. Actually, he digs into Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 says, it's a straight quote from there, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And um, this is one of the greatest Messianic Psalms in all the Bible. It's a Psalm we all ought to be familiar with, and so I think it helpful for us to turn to Psalm chapter 2, the second Psalm. It's a Psalm quoted several times in the New Testament. Um, It's quoted in Acts quite often, talking about the resurrection, the power, the ascension, when Jesus Christ just identified being the Son of God. And as you're turning to Psalm 2, let me just say, one of the reasons also I have in turning to some of these passages is that um, it's not as clear as you might think. You might think, hey, you know, he's got all these things and um, he's quoting all these Scripture passages and it's just clear as a bell. Of course. This first passage is one of the most clearest. Uh, The second passage is a little less clear. The third passage is even less clear. And then we get a... Uh, a clear one. So, so I just wanted to tell you a little bit, when you go into the Old Testament, there is mystery here. There's difficulty. It's, it's hard. It's not always what we see. It's not always what we might think. But it's there for us to really study and think. But I just want to warn you of that because you need to have that expectation when you study the Bible. It's not quite as clear. You know, the, the prophecies of Christ are there for sure, but they're not quite as clear as we would always like them to be. And so likewise, the, the truth here, your head may spin 
But all these passages show how Jesus is greater than the angels. I just want to walk through Psalm 2 together. The psalm begins with these words. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand against the rulers. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We see here a war developing. Nations are in an uproar. There's a, there's a stirring in here. Kings are scheming and they're counseling together against their enemy. But it's not a war between nation and nation. It's a war between nations and God. If you look here in verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. They're, they're like, like two evil things in the world that the the people see that they're fighting against. They're fighting against the Lord and against His anointed. And they're raging, is what it says. And and they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords. They're, They're feeling oppressed. They're feeling in bondage. And they're saying, let's get away from this rule of the Lord and His anointed. And so you say, who is the Lord and His anointed? Well, the the Lord, of course, is God the Father. The anointed one the Hebrew word for this is Mashiach, from which we get the word Messiah. So these nations are waging against the Lord and against the Messiah. They're fed up with the rule of God upon their lives. They want to they get away from God, which, boy, we see that all the time. Is that not true? Governments, governmental leaders, rulers, nations of the earth want to get away from God. Take Him out of the public schools. Take Him out of the public forum. Take Him out of athletics. Take Him all the way out. Because we don't want anything to do with God. It's the war that's being waged here in Psalm 2. And I love the response of God upon the throne. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord scoffs at them. His response is this. (laughs) You guys think you're going to fight against me? (laughs) <laughs> oh, man. Oh, you're killing me. Think about it, you got a problem. You have ants in your home. And so you take this aerosol spray can, it says Raid on it, ant killer, and so you start spraying these ants. Right? Get them back. Right? We don't want them here. Start spraying them back. <coughs> and the ants gather together for this meeting. Oh, we need to get rid of that aerosol spray can. You will get you, right? You think you can rely? And they're, you know, the tiny little their leg eggs. You know, they're they're, they're fists. They're, they're making fists. Ah, oh, gonna get against you. And you know, they're all gathered together. And what what would you do in that situation? <laughs> Let's stop this meeting now. <laughs> meeting adjourned. It's all done. Such is God's power upon the earth. And God's laugh quickly turns to anger though as He realizes who's rebelling against Him. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. This is the thunderous wrath of God coming against those who rebel against Him. And He said, As for me... I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I have my own king. I've placed him on Zion. He's the king of this anthill, guys. He's going to crush all of you. It's my holy place. He's my king. I've set him there. 
And this king is going to dominate you. He's going to wage war. And any war you wage is going to be absolutely no match. And then, he gives the microphone to his king. He gives the microphone to the Messiah who begins to speak here in verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. This is the Messiah. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Here is, God, here is Jesus giving testimony to God. He said, He said to me, the Father said to the Son, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, God pleading Jesus, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And then He gives the assurance, you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. In other words, God is guaranteed. Here's my testimony. God is guaranteed that I, being His Son, will rule and reign over the nations. I will own the earth. I will destroy the nations. I will crush them like clay pots. And the implication then comes. The psalmist now is speaking to us. Speaking to the kings who are waging war against the Lord. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Be smart about this, guys. You are rebel ants. And you're rebelling against the King of kings. Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Here it is. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Right, Bow your little knobby knees to God and worship Him. Do homage to the Son. Worship the Son. Worship the Messiah. Worship the Anointed. That He might not become angry with you and you perish in the way. You worship Him. And if you rebel against Him, He's going to be angry at you. If you worship Him, you'll be His friend. For my wrath may soon be kindled and how blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. There we see Psalm 2. And the, the promises of all this dominion and domination by the Messiah has to do all with the identity of the Messiah that He says in verse 7, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. And you can see the position and the dominance here in the psalm. He's the ruler of the world. He's the one who's going to reign on Zion. He's the one who's going to dominate the kings of the earth. And when the question is posed in chapter 1, verse 5, to which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten You? Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, is this isn't to any of the angels. No, this is to the Messiah. It's not an angel. It's the Son of God. There's no angel that rules and reigns like Jesus. There's no angel that's ever given this sovereign power over all the earth and over all the nations of the earth. No angel has ever received the title of Messiah. The Jews knew full well the Messiah would be a son of man, that he would be a son of the, the line of David. Which, by the way, Psalm 2 is a Davidic psalm. You can read in Acts chapter 4, I think it's verse 2, where they, the early apostles identified this as a Davidic psalm. It's a, a psalm anticipating the Messiah. Now, before we go on, I do want to mention just the words about uh, this word begotten. Um, today I've begotten. Um, some have taken this word, and this is where it's, things are difficult. Some have taken this word to mean that Jesus was a created being. I mean, after all, isn't that what begotten means? Right? Parents beget a child. They beget a, a son or they beget a daughter. And, and those who believe this argue right from here, and in some sense they have the clarity of this verse on their minds. Uh, uh, I have begotten you. 
as if Jesus was created. The difficulty, however, is that 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 doesn't harmonize with the rest of Scripture where we see Jesus as God himself. And so how can God beget God? Well, some say that God begat a little God. Well, I don't think that's the best way to understand it. I think it's that Jesus is God. It's the mystery of the Trinity. And in the early church, they fought long and hard so as to, to make a distinction between begotten does not mean made. It doesn't say, today I have made you. But it's, it's almost as today I have established you as my son, is what it is. I have given this to you. <clears throat> it's not making. In fact, listen to the words of the Nicene Creed. The, the early church fought long and hard over this word. He says, we believe in... And this is, so, this is the early church. All those persecuted believers that got together when Constantine in 325, it's actually in 311 or whatever, 320 something declared the, the Roman Empire to be a holy Roman Empire. We are a Christian empire now. And so all of you get together and figure out what it is this Christian faith is about. That's what Constantine said. And so the godly men and women from around the world who had been persecuted for years came together and they articulated their faith. They said, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten. That is, and this is the best definition of begotten, of the essence of the Father. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Worked really hard, the early church did, that He was begotten, He wasn't made. And so those who say that Jesus is a created being, you'll never find that language used in the Bible. He uses begotten language, which I think here it means to identify the essence of the Son. The Son is the same substance as the Father. A child shares the DNA of his parent. And so likewise, a son shares the same substance with the Father. In the case of Jesus, it's the deity substance that he shares. That's what's behind the word begotten. The establishment of today is working out in time. Uh, He has begotten him as a son, established him as the ruler and reigner over all the earth. Particularly if you look through Acts, you find this oftentimes coming even at the resurrection because it's there that God identified him as the Messiah, the one who's going to judge and rule and reign the world. <clears throat> well, Jesus is better than the angels because he's a son. That same argument is used in the next phrase in Hebrews 1. So turn back to Hebrews 1. It says here in Hebrews 1, second verse, second argument, same argument, another passage. He says, and again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Argument's the same. He is a son. Jesus Christ is a son. And none of the angels ever received the title son. So this quotation comes from 2 Samuel 7. And again, I think it'd be good. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, if you were with us, if you remember when I was preaching through the 12 stages in the Bible, when I got to the kingdom stage, I highlighted 2 Samuel 7. Genesis 1 is the creation of the world. Genesis 12 is the the covenant with Abraham where it begins, right? God's grace to Abraham. And 2 Samuel 7 is is really the Davidic covenant. It is the time when God shows His grace to David. It is a huge chapter in the Bible. It is a chapter that you ought to memorize in terms of at least where it is. Just 2 Samuel 7, right? Put that in your mind. Genesis 12, put that in your mind. 
I mean, these are two big watershed passages in the Old Testament, and so it's good for us to see. This quote comes from verse 14, but let's work to get there. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now it came about when the king, that's David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, a time of peace, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, this is his counselor, he said, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to him, Go, do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you. The implication here is that David looked and saw the dichotomy. Here he is living in a house. It's got structure. It's got wooden beams around it. He's sitting pretty. And, and the ark is there in a tent. It's the best that Israel could do is just give them a tent to worship the Lord. And so he counseled Nathan the prophet. So, so can we change this? Can we make a, a building for, for the ark? And Nathan, the implication is, go, do whatever's on your mind. He said, yeah, that's, that's good. But God said, not so fast. Verse 4, In the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, who actually given bad counsel to David, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one that should build me a house to dwell in? You're going to build me a house? I have a tent. I'm okay with a tent, is what he says. I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought the sons of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I've gone, with all the sons of Israel, did I ever speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel which I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? In other words, he's saying that, No, I'm okay with the tent. You don't have to build me a house. But then he goes on in verse 8 of what's going to happen. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, again, this is through Nathan, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Think about it, David. I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And there he says, I've been with you, David, and I'm going to be with you. I've given you rest from all your enemies. I'm going to make you a great name, right? Name, authority, being, power, reputation. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel. It's going to be on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah. And will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. <clears throat> Even here having a anticipations of the, the future <clears throat> kingdom with the blessing of God. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. <clears throat> house here is better understood as dynasty. He's going to make him a dynasty. He's going to make him a house. So house here doesn't just really refer to the physical thing. It even refers to the, the, the whole kingly dynasty of David. When your days are complete, you, die, you, lie, you, you lie down, you die, you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. In other words, David, you're going to die. One of your descendants is going to come up after you. I'm going to establish a kingdom. And verse 13, He shall build a house for my name. Who's that talking about? Who built a house for the name of God? Who's he talking about? Solomon. 
David's son. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who's that talking about? That's where it starts to get a little bit hairy, all right? It's talking about Solomon, probably precursoring Christ. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Who's that talking about? Trick question here, by the way. Hebrews quotes it of Jesus. Here it probably has first reference to Solomon because it says in verse 14, When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. And that came true in Solomon's life. He committed iniquity and God corrected him. But, verse 15, My loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I received before you. Remember the anointing of the Spirit was upon Saul, but he took it away. David became king. He said, you know, even Solomon in his great destruction, I'm not going to take the anointing away from him. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. And we know the message got to David through Nathan because it says in verse 17, in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. I want to focus here upon just the, the kingdom promise. Basically, if you say, okay, what's 2 Samuel 7 about? It's about the promise of David to have a kingdom forever. Now, if you remember from my 12 stages sermons, there are only two ways that this can take place. Either David's line must be interrupted, <clears throat> I'm sorry, must be uninterrupted forever. To have a forever kingdom, it means that David needs to have a son who's a king, like Solomon. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, needs to sit on the throne. And, and then Rehoboam's son, Abijah, needs to sit on the throne. And then Abijah's son, Asa, needs to sit on the throne. And, and then Asa's son needs to sit on the throne. And then his son needs to sit on the throne. That's the only way you can have a kingdom forever. But there's another way you can have a, a kingdom forever. That's for one of David's descendants to live forever and be a forever king. Now, of these two options, we know the first didn't happen. Zedekiah was the last of David's line to sit on the throne. There is no one. There's no human now. We can say, okay, who's sitting on David's throne? We can't identify him. But we do know the second option took place. That there is a forever king who reigns forever. His name is Jesus of the lineage of David. He is seated upon his throne. Remember Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He seeth the right hand of God. It says in, Roman, in Hebrews 1.13 that God has set him at his right hand waiting in, for his enemies and made a footstool for his feet. And 2 Samuel is an allusion to Jesus, the son of David. Now the particular quote, verse quoted by the writer of Hebrews comes here in verse 14. I'll be a father to him and he should be a son to me. And on the one hand, this, this, this refers to Solomon for sure. And yet, on the other hand, because of the messianic overtones of this whole scripture, this whole passage here, there is a reference here that the greatest son of David will be Messiah. So it's referring to Jesus. It's not quite as clean as we would like it, but that's the way the Bible works. And you see it right here. Jesus is God's Messiah, is God's son, and as God's son, he's greater than the angels. You see, the promise of the king to sit on the throne was not given to an angel. God never took an angel and said, you sit on my throne, I'm going to bless your kingdom forever. It's, it's been a human. It's been a man. It's the Son of Man. The one who identifies the Son of God. Let's turn back to Hebrews. We're nearing the end of my first point. 
These are two key passages. Psalm 2 is a key passage. 2 Samuel 7 is a key passage. Jesus is better than the angels because Jesus is the Son. My second point, we'll see how far I get through this, I think. We'll see. Jesus is better than the angels because Jesus is worshipped. Verses 6 and 7. And when He again brings the firstborn into the world, perhaps even the second coming verse He's talking about here, again bringing Him into the world. Don't get messed up on firstborn. These who believe that Jesus was a created being, see, He was the firstborn of creation. He's the first thing born. He's the first thing created, they say. But firstborn doesn't mean the first thing born because Jesus is also called the first uh, born from the dead. doesn't mean that Jesus was the first one to raise from the dead. It means that He's the preeminent one. That's what firstborn means. There are instances in the Scripture where the, the firstborn isn't the first one who was physically born. Right? It's Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, but Jacob is the firstborn. He's the one of prominence. Ephraim and Manasseh. One was born first, but the second one is called the firstborn. The firstborn is the predominant one. That, that's what, it's the preeminent one. So when he again, perhaps the second coming, brings this preeminent one into the world, he is a powerful, sovereign one, then the declaration is, let all the angels of God worship him. Jesus is worshipped. We see here in verse 6, it's a summons to worship. It's not merely that, okay, Jesus comes into the world and angels, if you want to, you can, you can worship this Jesus if you want to. Okay? Kind of optional. It's okay. It's okay with me. You can worship Him. And it's not that at all. It is a summons. It is a command. The angels of God are commanded to worship Jesus. And that makes Jesus better. In Hebrews 7, 7, there's this discussion about Melchizedek and Abraham, and it says, okay, who's better? Is Melchizedek better or is Abraham better? And the argument goes that the lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. It makes Melchizedek better than Abraham because it says without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The argument here would be this. The lesser worships the greater. And without any dispute, we know that's true and that's the case the lesser who worship the greater. We think about basketball fans, basketball stars. Right? It's, the, it's the people who worship the basketball gods, if you will. right? They, they, the better. They're, they're the greater ones. right? We give honor to them. And also, it's some, interesting sometimes around the, the dunk contest for the NBA, right? It's the NBA stars are like, whoa, look at those guys, how good those guys can dunk. You know, there's, a, there's this hierarchy. Who's better? Because those are the best guys. And, and with God, it's, that the lesser worships the greater. We worship God because He's greater than us. And angels, as they are commanded to worship the Son, demonstrate that the Son is greater than the angels. Maybe you remember the scene in Revelation 5 where angels are all around the throne of God. They're worshiping Jesus. I just want to read a bit for you. In Revelation 4 and 5, there are five pictures of heavenly worship. And... Um, Sometimes there's God upon the throne, sometimes there's God and the Lamb, and sometimes there are 24 elders, and sometimes there's these four living creatures, probably these seraphim flying around God, and then there's also these myriads of angels, and, and we just get different shots and different pictures of different, different um, worship services or different aspects of the worship of the throne of God. And it says in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, what John saw when he looked to heaven, he says, Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. So he's looking, he's seeing many angels around the throne of God. 
and the living creatures and the elders. So we've got all these beings all around the throne and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. You ever been in a church service? With lots of people. Avon and I, we went uh, last night to the 25th anniversary of Grace Church of DuPage, which planted Kishwaukee Bible Church that planted Grace... That, Planted Rock Valley Bible Church. So it's like our grandparent church. 25 years ago they started. And uh, Yvonne at one point said to me, she kind of looked around and, and there was a dinner beforehand. They had a big tent outside giving testimonies of God's grace throughout the years. Uh, and then we went inside. So we had a, an opportunity to dinner, testimonies, singing, worship time. And then we went in. 7 o'clock started a, a worship service, complete just a preaching of the Word and communion time. And, and at one point Yvonne was sitting right there and she says, wow, this place is he said you ever been in a service like that packed wall to wall just people loving to be there loving to hear a word from God well that's what's taking place here in Revelation 5 myriads of myriads thousands of thousands of angels and and, and the elders and the, the living creatures all around the throne and here they are saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain who are they worshiping Worthy is the Lamb. They are worshiping the Lamb. They're worshiping Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Loudly before the throne in every created thing which is in heaven and on earth. Everything and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen! 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 And the elders fell down and worshipped. There is the celestial culmination of history with all creation, angels included, worshipping the Lamb of God. So I ask you, who's better? The angels or the Lamb? Angels know their place. They know they're not to be worshipped. They know that they need to worship. Twice in the book of Revelation, John is overwhelmed by what he sees and falls down at the feet of an angel to worship him. And the angel quickly says, Don't do that. I'm your fellow servant. I'm your brethren. The prophets and those who heed the words of this book. He says, Worship God. Don't worship me. Angels know full well that their worship is to be to God, that they're not to receive worship from people. And they worship Jesus. And that's what verse 6 says. When he again brings the first point in the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, here again is where it gets a little bit messy, but it's good for you to know this. This quote is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Okay? You can write that down. You can look it up later. But here's something interesting. If you go to look at that verse in your Bible, it's not going to be there. It doesn't say in your Bible that all the angels of God worship Him. You say, Steve, why, why does it come from this passage? Well, because the writer to the Hebrews was a Greek writer. He didn't quote the Old Testament Hebrew. He quoted the Old Testament Greek, which is called the Septuagint. And this text reads this way in the Septuagint. Deuteronomy 32:43. Let all the angels of God worship Him, but it's not in the Hebrew text. It's just a little, little messy here. He's... He's referring to this passage which is in one Bible, it's not in the other, and textually, which one is right? We, we don't know. Now, it is interesting, in the, text, the Hebrew text of some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
though this phrase is in that verse. The reading of that day, though, in the Greek, was familiar to the Jews. So it's just interesting. I put that, put that text before you. But it is consistent. All the angels of God indeed worship Him. God summons all of them in Deuteronomy. Now there's no, no point this time, this morning, to turn to that passage. It's not a messianic text. It's a message that calls angels to worship. There's really nothing to gain from the context going to help us. But we can glean from the, from the context of the next passage, which is verse 7. Verse 7, he says this, Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This comes from Psalm 104. So let's go there. It's where we'll finish here this morning. Psalm 104. And then we'll pick up the other points on my outline next week. I think I'll be able to finish the next three next week. Psalm 104. This is a creation psalm. It speaks about how God cares for the creation. It speaks in verses 5 through 9 how He cares for the earth. It speaks in verses 10 through 13 how He provides water for the beasts and the donkeys and the branches to live. He provides vegetation, verses 14 and 15. He provides habitation for all the the different birds and the animals, the moon, the stars, everything. Verse 27 and following, it says that all things are dependent upon God. Right? Verse 27, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give it to them and they gather it up. You open your hand and they are satisfied. Psalm 104 is a creation psalm. It just speaks about how God is cared for and makes creation, helps creation. In the midst of it all, verse 4 then speaks about the angels. Let's just begin in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. It speaks then about what God is, what He does. You are covering Yourself with light as with a cloak. Right there it is, before the throne of God. We just see light. You've got light as your cloak covering you. Stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. So allusion there to Psalm 19, verse 1. He lays beams in His upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. And there it is in verse 4, what the author of Hebrews quotes. Okay, but what does Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7 say? you remember? Who's got it? What does it say? Yeah, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. What does Psalm 104 say? He makes the winds his angels. He makes flaming fires his ministers. So it's like backwards. However, some texts get it right. I think the ESV doesn't change it around. The ESV says exactly... Darren, I know you got ESV, I think, right? Do you have that with you today? What did it say? Psalm 104, verse 4. Okay. The New American Standard switches those around. I'm not sure. You can, you can put them either way. In the Hebrew text, it's, it's ambiguous how you put them. The NAS, though, does have a footnote that puts it right, that it agrees with the, um, the author of the Hebrews. So I just, I just, I'm just really trying to be honest with you, show you how the Scriptures may be not as clear and set forth as you think they are. However, the point here is very clear. 
Okay, it's not that the point is missed in any of these passages. The point is, is clear. Maybe it's not as clear as we would like, but, but here it is clear. Is that God reduces angels who are greater than men to mere forces of nature. He makes His angels to be winds. He just scatters them out. And he just spreads them to the end of the earth. And if God reduces angels to forces of nature, how much greater is the sun who will never be reduced to a force of nature? How much better is the sun than angels? Much better. Because the angels are just wind at God's call. And in fact, I think one of the things he's talking about here is just the fact that the angels are like around the throne waiting for God's command. And when God says something, He just blows on them and they go. And go, go here, go here. And they're just there, you know, like a, like a puppy dog standing before God saying, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Fetch, boom, and they go. And God just says, He makes His angels, messengers, just winds that just go and accomplish His purpose. But the Son, on the other hand, as it says in verse 8 of Hebrews 1, He sits on His throne forever and ever. The contrast there between the Son and the angels. So, we will pick it up in chapter 1, verse 8 next week. I just want to do everything I can to lift high Jesus and show He's greater than the angels. We'll continue this next week. Let's close in prayer. And then you'll be, you'll be dismissed. Let's pray. God, I thank You that though the details of this may be confusing, it may be difficult, it may be hard, I thank You that the main point is clear. I've labored to get across here this morning that Jesus is better than the angels. He's a son. He is worshipped. And we'll see next week even of his, his throne, how he has royalty. We'll see next week even how he's, he's the creator. He's the one that sustains all things. He's the sovereign one. And I pray, Lord, that even as I mentioned earlier, my aim is to lift high Jesus, that we would bow before him with more willingness and desire than ever before, seeing the greatness, the power of His sovereignty, of His majesty. And we see Him and we love Him and we worship Him. And I pray even for our times throughout the rest of Hebrews, that we see Jesus and adore Him and be a worshiper of Him, that others might see and might join us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. You're dismissed. Have a great Lord's Day.